check. There it is. Um, we are going to continue in our sermon series in 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be one, a seat beside you or underneath the chair in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles. And um, if you do not own a Bible, please see this as our gift to you. Please take that Bible home with you. Um, hopefully that is the same reference page, page 222 in the Pew Bible. You can find this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 14. So last Lord's Day, if you had the opportunity to be with us, we looked at the first 23 verses, and today we're going to finish out the remainder of the chapter, verses 24 through 52. As you're finding the passage, just by, by way of reminder and to introduce where we're going this morning, where we've been. Um, King Saul is ruling in Israel. He has a son, Jonathan. And in chapter 13, Jonathan was the one who first initiated a battle with the Philistines by taking out a garrison that was in Israel's land. And if you recall, Saul was the one that, that took credit for this initial victory, but that was what really began this whole stirring up the hornet's nest, so to speak. Um, the, the Philistines came out in full vengeance, mounting army and Michmash, ready to, um, to overtake Israel. And uh, just some reminders, at this point, Saul and Jonathan are the only two in Israel that actually have the correct uh, weaponry to fight. Uh, because of the oppression of the Philistines, really, it was just the agricultural tools was all really that the rest of the Israelites had uh, at their disposal. They even had to pay to have their tools sharpened by the Philistines, as we were told. Now, when Jonathan overtook this garrison, Samuel had directed the king to go to a meeting place in Gilgal and to wait. And in chapter 13, we see Saul's first major failure as a king. He waited almost enough time but because of all that was pressing in, the army, his own people fleeing, and Samuel nowhere to be found, he was supposed to wait seven days. On that seventh day, as the circumstances are getting harder and harder, he ends up offering the sacrifices himself, the burnt offering, which he was not supposed to do. And so Samuel comes and rebukes Saul and informs him that the Lord has rejected his kingship. That's 1 Samuel chapter 13. In the aftermath of this rebuke, it seems with Saul's actions that he is devoting himself to religious observances, like we see him observing different aspects of religious formalism, while at the same time, it's very interesting, he's involved in this religiosity, but his heart is growing more and more reckless and hard in these situations that are presented to him, as we will see clearly in our chapter and into chapter 15. So more religious observance does not equate to a heart that is softening towards the Lord. I think it's good for us to just think about that for a moment. He is, he is doing a lot. Some things are prescribed, others are man-made, but he is, he is actively doing things that may fall under the umbrella of being religious, and yet we're seeing this reckless 
hardening of heart happening to the king of Israel. Last week, we ended in verse 23, so I want you to look at your Bibles that are open. So the Lord saved Israel that day. So in the first half, so to speak, of chapter 14, God and his mighty hand is evident through the work of Jonathan once again. The bold faith of Jonathan, God brings salvation to Israel. But then we'll, as we'll look at, as, as we begin to read verse 24 and following, as I read and you follow, uh, we're going to see that there's a shift that occurs. And so I want you to be mindful of that. We end verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. And then now with your Bibles open, please follow along as I read. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the, honey, into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel... Though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, 
and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkashua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinim, the daughter of Ahimaz, Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Hear the word of the Lord. Y'all did so good hanging in there. That was a long passage. Okay. We're going to dig into this passage, and if you were with us several Lord's Days ago, the, the title of uh, 1 Samuel 13 was, I believe, the first failure of the king, and here we see the second great failure, this oath that was made by King Saul, and then in chapter 15, we'll see the third great failure of the king. What we see in this particular passage with this oath, this foolish oath that was taken, was first that it zapped the life and joy out of the people of Israel. And then secondly, we see that this foolish oath really pushed the troops towards disobeying God's law. And then lastly, we'll see how this foolish oath nearly brought death to the king's son. Again, I want to just highlight as we enter into this, the, the divergence that we see from verse 23 and verse 24, 
where the Lord saved Israel that day. And then we hear this description of the people being hard-pressed. Why were they so hard-pressed? And we see from the passage this oath that was just mentioned. Saul makes this oath in verse 24. We hear it and, and just need to let it kind of sit because it drives this narrative. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had eaten on this day of battle. And we also need to, to hear the contrast of words that Jonathan used at the beginning of chapter 14 when he, when he declares um, his, his opening his hands to the Lord in verse 6. It may be, or perhaps, the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That sounds so very different than Saul's words here. Saul's, Saul's oath, the man who disobeyed God in chapter 13 by not waiting for Samuel, here makes no reference to God. He expressed no, no confidence in God and really was focused on avenging himself on his enemies and, and really wanting the, the people to, to support him, make, make much of him in all of this. And I just, I, I want us to see that contrast of Jonathan making much of God in the way that he approaches this hard, difficult situation and the way that Saul does. And so as a result of this foolish oath, we're, we're, we're told that the, the troops are in distress the word faint is used, very faint, in this chapter. And so what we see here from the first half of 14 to now, Saul turning deliverance from God into distress. This hard-pressed, this description of being hard-pressed is also interesting because in chapter 13, that same description is used of the people of Israel but they're being hard-pressed because of the enemy, because of the Philistines. And here, what's so sad about the state of this situation is they're being hard-pressed because of the king's action, their own king, and making this foolish oath. Matthew Henry derides Saul's oath. He calls it misguided, haughty, and wicked. I think it's helpful. He says it's misguided because if it, if it granted time, it lost strength for the pursuit. So misguided and as, he's, as he's directing them into battle. Uh, haughty, because it forbid them to feast. Uh, be, for, forbidding them to feast would have possibly been a commendable thing for one leading an army. But to forbid them to even taste, to even eat anything when they're so hungry was a brutal act of a king towards his military, and then wicked to enforce the prohibition with a curse and an oath. Had he no penalty less than anathema wherewith to support his military discipline? So he is laying out this curse upon anyone who disobeys the king in this way. So misguided, haughty, and wicked. And so we have to just hear very clearly the reason why Israel is hard-pressed is solely because of the actions of the king. Now, in our passage, we're not exactly sure when 
Saul makes this oath. But we do know that Jonathan and his armor bearer did not hear it. That's the information that's given to us. They are out of sight, away when this oath is made. And so that much being clear, Jonathan comes up on the scene in verses 24 through, through 30, really, and sees that the people had not tasted any food, yet they're in a forest where there is an abundance of honey. The honey is dropping down. And if you were thinking about, okay, this was probably an area where the Philistines once inhabited in the midst of this battle, and they've been driven out, this would be the spoils of war. This is the land flowing with milk and honey, yet they are not allowed to enjoy the spoils of this battle. What a, what a, what a hard scene that we have before us. It is there before them in great abundance, yet they are not able to partake. And we see Jonathan's action and the response to his father's foolish oath. When he gets there, we see that he, not knowing what his father had said, dips into that glorious honey dropping all over the place, and the description of his, his eyes becoming bright should not be missed because that invigorates him. That's what he needed to continue on pursuing the Philistines. Now, I want us to just stop for a moment and think about Saul as a leader. In making this foolish oath, Cursed be upon anyone who eats. Saul erred by requir requiring more from his people than God actually required. That is a, a great error as a leader. He has been given responsibility and he is putting something upon the people that is extra biblical. It is not what God has required, yet he is man-making commands and, and, and pushing, oppressing, really, his own people by these commands. And really, we need to just make note, this is how extra-biblical requirements have a tendency to do on all of us. The first thing that came to my mind as I was studying this passage, you think about the Pharisees and how they interacted with the people that they were supposed to spiritually lead in Israel. And how Jesus again and again rebukes them, admonishes them, calls them out that they are creating laws, extra laws that are not what God has prescribed. And it is, it is not causing the people to flourish. It actually is oppression upon the people. It is weighing them down. And I wonder if we have that same tendency, maybe as parents, maybe talking to the fathers in this room with your children, are there things, commandments that you have placed upon your children that actually aren't rooted in Scripture but are extra-biblical? And you can see when even the Apostle Paul talks about this charge not to exasperate our children. I think it is a father who lays commands that are not in Scripture, more heavy, more man-made on their children, where they, they see this same type of response that the people of Israel, the, the troops, respond in this chapter. Do what, whatever seems good to you, Saul. Whatever you think is right, just continue to do that. There, there is not a, a people rallying around the king at this point as they are very faint because of this extra-biblical command placed upon them. 
This could happen with church leaders who invent their own extra biblical rules for conduct and place it upon their members. And instead of bringing life and unity, it actually it, it weighs down the body. So Jonathan comes on. He tastes, his eyes, his eyes light up. He's not even aware, but they tell him, your father has made this oath. And his response is, my father has troubled this land. That again, that phrase, when Joshua is identifying the sin in the camp, Achan's sin, Achan brought trouble upon the people. Saul has brought trouble to this land where this should have been a great celebration. This uh, deliverance, this salvation from the Lord. Jonathan says, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of, uh, of, of this honey How much better would this have been? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And so there is unintentional consequences. I do not think that Saul made this oath thinking that it was going to lead to this conclusion, but there are unintentional evils that come about because of this this oath made by King Saul. Now, again, looking at the scene, we're told that Uh, The Israelites push or strike down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon. And just so we kind of get an idea of the, the distance, this was about 20 miles from one place to the next. And this is not like the flat terrain of West Texas. So when they're pursuing and striking down the Philistines and not having anything to eat, when the sun is beating down and the terrain is harsh, You can only imagine this description of being very faint. They are in desperation at this point to satisfy their hunger. And what we see happen is that the people, verse 32, pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate the the animals with the blood. So one of the unintended evils of Saul's foolish oath involved the sin of his famished soldiers violating God's rules or laws for the food regulations. This actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. It was clearly a part of God's law that they were not supposed to eat animals with the blood still in it. Now, for us, that may seem foreign, but I want us to to think about this for a moment. Blood represented life and was actually used in God's law for his people in atoning for sins. It was used in the atoning sacrifices, Leviticus chapter 17. Listen to this description. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, For you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. In God's law, this whole very important concept of not eating the blood is but a shadow that points to the substance. So if you're thinking about the blood and why is it important, 
It's used in the sacrificial system to atone for sins. And so I want us this morning to hear just a few verses out of Hebrews chapter 9 and think for a moment of the importance of the blood and how it is fulfilled and, cu- and culminates in the Lord Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then a little bit further down in that chapter, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then verses 26 through 28, Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for one man to, or for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, after having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It was a big deal for them to eat the blood because of what it represented. This was God's way of showing his people this is how sinners can be redeemed. This is how rebels who deserve my wrath upon them for eternity can experience the forgiveness of their sins. It was a big deal to eat the blood. This is what this foolish oath had driven the people to. So obedience to Saul's foolish oath had now led to mass obedience to God's law. Verse 33, then Saul steps up and tries to make what is so wrong right. Behold, the people have been sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. So he basically basically tries to make a place that this Uh, slaughtering of the animals can actually happen the right way and they're not eating of the blood. So he's seeking to make things right by creating this place. And again, it seems that in this moment, there is success in this external religious observance in Saul's life. And so much so that he is prompted to build an altar to the Lord. This is the first altar, we're told, that Saul built to the Lord. Again, Matthew Henry is helpful here in his commentary. He says that Saul was turning aside from God through all of this. And yet, now he began to build altars, being most zealous, as many of us are, for the form of godliness when we are actually denying the power of it. In all these actions, it really does seem that Saul is the kind of the driving force behind what he is doing is really his own interest. He wants this battle to, to come to 
fruition. He wants to see the Philistines uh, be overcome and whatever it takes to achieve those purposes, he's going to, to, see it, to see it happen. It seems that he is really concerned about the people's act of disobedience in this, in this setting of them eating of the blood without the slightest suggestion of his own responsibility for causing the problem. And again, I would just remind us, we are told in Scripture that sin is so deceitful. The deceitfulness of sin, where we think if we do certain things, then we're on the right path while the whole time we're, we have blinders on to the reality of our own sin. So with the altar built... Saul then just immediately proposes this game plan of completely wiping out the Philistines by night in verse 36. And again, sounds very different from Jonathan earlier in the chapter. There was no reference to God by Saul, no expression of faith in God. But now that I've built the altar, now that I've taken care of that sin issue, we're going to just go all in and overtake the Philistines. Again, the people respond, do whatever seems good to you. But it's really interesting here. The priest pops in and says, you know, I think it's probably a good idea that we, we seek the Lord before we do this, which prompts Saul to then go, oh, yeah, I'm, okay, you're right, you're right. Jumping a little too quick here. So the, the introduction of Urim and Thummim is really introduced in this next section. And re the reason why I'm saying it now is because um, there's not a whole lot known about how it exactly worked, but it was like the casting of lots. Um, these objects were, were actually placed in the priest's uh, breastplate. We see that in Exodus chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 8. They're used to seek God's guidance in important matters. And again, the reason why I mention it here is because um, some think that they could communicate really three things. They could give a yes answer, a no answer, and then no answer. All three are important because this first section, when the Lord does not answer Saul, it's assumed that this was the no answer. Later, we, we see that there are clear answers when the people are being narrowed down and who's responsible of defying the king's foolish oath, but we're not there yet. There is no answer to the king, so Saul seems to have assumed that God's silence has to be someone else's fault, surely. So he, again, pursues um, seeking to find the truth to what, what has transpired, where is the sin in the camp? So verses 38 and 39, And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though even if it be in my son Jonathan, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him at this point. Not only did Saul receive no word from the Lord, this detail is important. At this point, the people also refused to answer him. When making the oath, it seems Saul was trying to avoid what he had experienced earlier in, chapters, in chapter 13, where the people were deserting him. Do you remember when he was waiting for Samuel and he's watching his people flee and going hiding in holes. And it seems like he's doing this, this oath upon the people to keep them all together. 
And while he may still have them all together physically, their response to the king through this section is showing that their heart is not with him. And so what he tried to, to do, this extra biblical command upon his people and bringing and keeping everyone together and unified has actually backfired upon him. Where the people at this point are disengaged, do not want to even respond to him at this point. The Lord has not answered Saul, and he wants to find out why. And so the casting of lots, who has broken the oath that I have made? And he, again, does not even consider his presumption in commanding that foolish oath. And so we watch it unfold, verses 41 and 42, separating the people and Saul and Jonathan, and the people escape. And then it's between Saul and Jonathan, and Jonathan is set aside as the one who broke the foolish oath that Saul had made. Then in verse 43, then Saul said to, to Jonathan, remember, this is his own son. Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And this is the response of King Saul to his son. God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die. Tell me what you have done demands the king. And really, this is an echo of how Samuel talked to Saul when Saul disobeyed God, did not wait for Samuel to come to make the sacrifices that would give the Israelites the favor of God for battle. What have you done, Saul? Now Saul is saying this to his own son. What is it that you have done? And Jonathan responds. And I just want to make note of this. This has to be one of the lowest points in Saul's life. He's looking at his son and he is boldly declaring, you are the one and you are now going to die. His willingness to put his own son to death for breaking the foolish oath that he had made really reveals so much going on in the, in the heart of this man at this point in his life and leadership as king over Israel. He plans to shed the blood of his own son, but the army of the Israelites intervene to save Jonathan, arguing, as we see in the passage, this is the one who has brought salvation to us. God used the faith of your son to deliver us this very day. By no means, they will not let the king kill the son. And I love that it's described as they ransomed him. The Israelites delivered Jonathan from the penalty of death. If you've ever wondered, what does ransom mean? Jesus ransomed me. He has delivered you from the penalty of death. It's amazing that the people of Israel, the troops that are gathered at this place, at this particular time, right to the king's face say, you will not kill your son. There's a lot of boldness in speaking to the king in that way. This episode concludes by noting that Saul also failed 
to actually deal with the Philistines. After all that had transpired right there, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. Surely we can see that by his foolish oath, he has turned deliverance into distress. And then lastly, some may think it's odd, the last part of chapter 14, we we get this summary of Saul's reign, his family legacy, um, and and it, it seems to come across in very positive light all that he was able to accomplish as king over Israel. His failings as, Israel, as Israel's king is true and noted in chapters 13, 14, and 15. But it was not because a lack of military skill. That much is clearly laid out for us in verses 47 and 48. I think it's important that it's here because it really does serve to to show us that it it really had nothing to do with the success of him as a military leader that, that we're seeing and identifying the ways in which he's failed as a king. His failure, as we saw in chapter 13 and playing out in our passage today and what we'll see in chapter 15, was really about him trusting and obeying. That's really what it boiled down to. Covenant obedience matters much more than this vocational achievement that he had as king over Israel. And I I was thinking about this also. Many of us, I've had this conversation with a multitude of people. I've also been the one saying it at times. You know someone who's a friend or an acquaintance. They're so skilled, successful, but they're an unbeliever. And you're looking at them and you maybe talk to your friend. You're like, man, or brother or sister in Christ, if God would just save this person, they would do amazing things in the kingdom. I don't, what, no one has to raise hands, but we probably have all either thought that or said that. And as we look at King Saul, I think it's so important for us to say that God is not looking for, for winners, but he's looking for disciples. Men and women who will, with reckless abandonment, follow the Lord as Lord. He is the one that rules and reigns, and we are dependent upon him in every sphere of life, and we seek to obey, to trust, and obey. Just hear again the grace verse for this month. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So as we look at King Saul and this second great failure in chapter 14, I think we can all sense the tragedy of this part of his life and also relate to the weaknesses that we see in our own life. I I do not want us to just sit there and point the finger at Saul and go, man, he is in such a different category of sinner before God, but actually see that our weaknesses are just like his weaknesses. We're told in chapter 15, a lot of the things that Saul does as king is really because he cares so much about what people think about him. It actually directs a lot of his decision-making, what people think of him. 
man, how guilty am I in my own life of being driven by what people think of me rather than what God requires of me? Saul failed as we have failed. We know what it is like to forget God. We know what, is, what it is like to not really trust God in difficult circumstances. And all of us know what it's like to disobey blatantly God's commands. Some of us this morning maybe are feeling the weight of, man, I have placed a lot of extra biblical commandments on my own life, maybe on my spouse, on my children, and need to repent and recognize that God has given us the blueprint for life that leads to abundance and joy. And yet we, like the Pharisees, want to just add on to think that it's going to make it a little bit better. The difference between sinful Saul and the next king that's going to come, King David, who is just as sinful, is the same difference that we see within the disciples. You look at Judas and Peter, both betraying the Lord on the night that he was arrested. The difference between David and Peter, as we're looking at all of these sinners, both who are found guilty before God because of their sin, is really their humility, a godly sorrow that would distinguish them from a Saul or a Judas, a humility, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, one that would seek the Lord, seek the Lord's mercy and his grace. We hear that from King David in Psalm 51. Listen to the beginning of this, this prayer uh, that he lifts up to the Lord. The, the, the words used matter. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's faith was looking forward to the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, represented by the blood of lambs and goats, the one who would make the final, ultimate sacrifice, who takes away the sins of the world and restores us to God's grace. As we look at Saul's life as king, we don't see this type of humility this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Rather, we see in Saul's life his chief and probably greatest folly at every point resorting to kind of this outward show of religious observance, which really just served only to avoid the opening of his heart being humble before God, true contrition before God because of his sin. We, we have to hear this. God cannot be bought off. He can't be uh, somehow kind of we earn favor with him because of the good things that we do before him or all the religious for, formalities that we may create thinking that this will earn us a right standing before a holy and righteous God. There is a verdict rendered towards Saul's failed religion. We hear it in Luke chapter 18. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God calls all of us to confess our sins, appeal to the blood of the Savior. There is only one way for sinners to experience 
the forgiveness of their sins, and the gift of eternal life. And we hear this promise from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Blessed be the God, the Father of all mercy, who continues to pour his benefits upon us. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We pray for you, O Lord, to bless your word that we have heard today. Make it health and strength to us. And let the wisdom of the psalmist speak the desire of our hearts this morning. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord. According to your steadfast love, remember us. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And in all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.